Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore and the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Brandon Giddens is a brilliant fiddle and banjo player who's one of the few musicians alive today trained in the centuries-old black string band tradition. Giddens won a Grammy as the co-founder and lead singer of the Carolina Chocolate Drops in 2011. And after venturing off on her own, she was awarded a MacArthur Genius Grant for exploring the complexities of the African-American influence on folk and country music. Giddens is a North Carolina native, but now lives in Ireland, not far from her partner, Francesco Teresi. During lockdown, the duo recorded their latest album, They're Calling Me Home, which was in part influenced by Joe Thompson, who taught Giddens his family's traditional fiddle style that can be traced back to the 1800s. On today's episode, Bruce Hedlum talks to Giddens about her decision to write from a cultural point of view rather than her own. Giddens also talks about how she's been able to maintain a living connection to the near-extinct Black Square Dance players. And we'll hear her play a banjo style that originated in West Africa. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Bruce Hedlum with Rhiannon Giddens. Thank you, first of all, so much for doing this. We're talking about your new album and your last album and anything else you want to talk about. Your ballet. You wrote a ballet too, didn't you? Yeah. wrote a ballet, an opera. I didn't know about the opera. What was that? Well, it's, it was supposed to debut last year and then it was going to debut this year and now it's going to debut next year. Um, but yeah, it's called Omar. It's for the Spoleto Festival and it's uh, about Omar bin Said, who was a Quranic scholar 37 years old, captured, sold from Senegal, brought over on the Middle Passage and ended up enslaved for 50 years until his death in North Carolina. He wrote his autobiography in Arabic. Wow. That sounds incredible. Yeah, it's just there's a lot of of stories within that one story. So, yeah. You know, this new record is almost all, you know, old material, traditional, traditional songs or songs that were written, you know, in that style, but are recent and all of my original material has been gone, gone into an opera <laughs> the last couple <laughs> of years. So I was like, well, hopefully people will be okay. There's 
It's not, it's not a, it's not a original record, but you know, it's like, it's never been my bag anyway. Writing stuff. Well, it's not, it's not my, it's not, never been my focus. Like if, if, if the story is told best through an original song, I'll, I'll do it. But I've, I was an interpreter for years before I ever thought about writing songs. So I, I'm never sitting down going, okay, I need to write a new album. It's like, if there's no inspiration to write the song and it, there often isn't because it's just, there's so many great songs out there already so much great music. So it has to be something really, I feel like I can tell in a way that's, you know, specific to me. That means, you know, I'm just not going to write for the sake of writing. Was it hard for you to start writing, having been an interpreter for so long? No, because I, you know, I don't really write about myself. I've only written a couple of songs from my points of view, and they're not on any of my records. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, I write from a cultural point of view, from other people's point of view. And those are the songs that, you know, when they started to come out, it was those kind of songs, like Julie, like at the purchaser's option, like, you know, these very specific trying to highlight black and mostly female voices, you know, that I feel like need to be highlighted. And a lot of times they come through as, as real spiritual kind of events you know, I mean, I, I have written songs like I wrote usually with partners, like with people. Like I wrote um, all of my, most of my Nashville songs with my songwriting partner from Louisiana, Dirk Powell, you know, that that I could do. I was like, okay, like I can co-write songs that I'm not connected to, like in a cultural way, you know, but just coming for me, I, I, I did one for NPR. It was like, songs you know coming out of the experiences of, of lockdown and it was i found it very torturous <laughs> really? like, yeah i was just like who cares about what i'm feeling <laughs> it's like it's my feelings and and really my life's not that bad what's what, what do i need to say here it was very it was a very interesting thing uh, and it just solidified what i do and what i don't do <laughs> <laughs> that's a very <laughs> funny thing for an artist to say though who cares what I'm feeling? Well, I, I feel like everybody makes their art in the way that makes sense to them. And for me, I I am the least important and interesting thing in what I do, you know? And it's not, I know that there's amazing songs out there that have come out of people's experiences that have made a great difference to people. And, you know, I've enjoyed some of those songs and it's, it's a totally valid way to go. It's just not my way. Your new album is great. It's coming out in a little while. So tell me about making this album. You know, everybody has had to adjust to this pandemic. Like, and I say, like, there's just so, such huge differences between how, how, you know, people who are comfortably off, well off, and people who aren't have had a pandemic. You know, there's been people who've never had to stop working, interacting with people because they're on front lines or their service industry or any, you know, they needed the paycheck. And people who could just kind of hole up in their houses for a year. And there's detrimental things to all of it, but I just say all of it with an acknowledgement of privilege. You know, I think it's very important to, to do that. But to say that in general, you know, artists, musicians, there's an additional difficulty, you know, within, in that our very work, it's like we're like the restaurant industry, you know, it's like our very work involves people, you know, we can't, just not work in an office and work at home and do emails. Like it's, so that's been really hard. And then I just got the idea. We have been playing these old folk songs that were, you know, they were just kind of cropping up. You know, I was just finding myself, you know, sit down, we sit down with our instruments and I would just start singing. And I just said, well, let's just start singing these. Let's just start doing these in the stream. You know, this is with my partner, Francesco. And it was like night and day. It was like, oh my gosh. These songs have never been on stage and we're doing them because we're connecting to them right now. And I said, let's just run into the studio and record these. I'm just feeling them right now. How did your situation, isolation, how did they inform the choice of songs? Well, these so- the songs that were coming up, I mean, were ones I hadn't done in a long time. You know, a couple of them predate the Carolina Chocolate Drops days. Like it was just when I was just getting into old time music. And I think, you know, and the Italian ones were, you know, they're, they're ones that Francesco has known for a very long time. And the two main themes of the record are like home and death. 
So we're like surrounded by death every day. It's how many people have died? Like literally the news every day. And then we're like, how many people have died in Italy? How many people have died in the U.S.? How many people have died in North Carolina? Are my parents going to die? Are, are we even going to be able to go home? You know, it's just like all the stuff that everybody's been dealing with. But like that's in the air all the time. So these, you know, stuff like, oh, death just comes up. And the idea of not being able to go home. And so these songs are not just any songs, but they're songs when I was really coming into my own as an, as a, as identifying as a North Carolinian, you know, like for me as a mixed person, multiracial, but like, there's no, there was no space for that when I was a kid, it was like black, white and other, and you had to check a box. And I just, I had this existential dilemma every time I filled out a form. Did you fill it out differently at different times? I did. Sometimes I, f I fill all the boxes in. It depended on <laughs> how much in trouble I would get if I, you know, so it was like the SAT or something. I like, you know, I put it black. Cause I was, t I talked to my mom about it and she was just like, look, you know, for all intents and purposes in this country, you're considered black. So that's what you put down, you know, but you know, I, I circle that in. I think of my dad who's white, you know, and I'm just like, and back then I didn't understand the nuance of the one drop rule and the history and all that stuff. All I knew is this doesn't feel right to me, you know? Neither one feels right. So when I started finding the music of the the root music of North Carolina in my early twenties, that's when I started going, "Oh, I know, I know what I am." Like, forget the color. I'm just like North Carolinian, and it really tied me to a a sense of belonging and a sense, of, even though I was like I've been living in North Carolina my whole life, other than college. And but all of a sudden, I felt like, "Oh, okay, I know what that means." And I found that through the music. So when I sing these songs, it takes me back to that feeling of belonging, you know, at home. It's an inter it's interesting. It's just like stuff I would have never thought about recording <laughs> ever. <laughs> and they're coming up and just like sing me. I'm like, okay. What's an example of, of one of the first songs that occurred to you that you should you should put in this album for that reason? Well, like, you know, Blackish Crow came up. And that that's what that was one of the first old time tunes I ever learned. I can still remember learning it from Steve Terrell. I wrote it, I wrote the words down. Like he's a kind of a stalwart in the old time community in Greensboro, North Carolina. And I just thinking it was so beautiful. And then in and of itself, it's dealing with being separated from your loved one. And, you know, I wish that I was going with you or you were staying here, you know? And especially in the beginning of the pandemic, you know, Francesco and I, we don't live together because we have children who go to school in different cities. So we live where they live and it's two and a half hours apart. So there were times when we were locked down, like it was serious lockdown and like we didn't even, couldn't even go see each other. So it's just like all of those thoughts and in thinking about people who were separated, you know, continents separated from their loved ones and not able to go see them. And, you know, and there's a lot of songs about that because we haven't always been able to travel as easily as we, we as we do now. That just came up, and then it's like the combination of taking this really old song and feeling like so it's an old song on its own. So it just has this connection, this kind of deep connection, right, to humanity. And then it's got this additional connection that I have, you know, as a North Carolinian, feeling like a North Carolinian, missing North Carolina. And then we're doing it in a way that would never be done back home, you know, the way that Francesco plays the the, the uh, cello banjo, which was originally owned by Mike Seeger. Oh, is that right? <laughs> you know, it's, wow. It's, yeah, because I knew him and his widow. When he died, Alexia made sure that his vast music collection, she let people that he knew and who knew him first come pick instruments to buy, mm -hmm. to be passed on to. And so I picked that in a in a beautiful little banjo. And that cello banjo had been sitting in, in my house. Like, I'd never played it. I didn't know why I bought it, you know, but I just loved the sound of it. Beautiful shape. He put these strings on it. It just made it sound like a lute. And then Francesco came to my house and picked it up and started playing it. And I was like, well, that's why I bought it. There you go. Yeah. And so that's all over the record, that banjo sound, what we found with that banjo in, in my viola. So it's just like there's a lot wrapped up in that. And then Emer is bringing in Ireland 
with the flute, the, the Irish flute. And so it was just a really, I felt so fortunate to be able to, to have been able to have that time. You're, you're in Ireland now, right? Been in Ireland since last March. We came from Australia. What's it like now to observe, because you are a North Carolinian, you're an American. What's it like to be out of the United States for now a year, which is probably what you didn't expect? I didn't. No, it's been hard. It's been weird. Is part of it a little easier? You know, I'm thinking of people like Baldwin, who who found life abroad. It relieved them of something. Well, in normal days, yes. It, it was kind of a breath of fresh air to come to Ireland, you know, because this is my work. Like, when all the stuff went down the way it went down last year, you know, people were calling me up and asking my opinion about stuff. I was like, my opinion has not changed. I've been talking about this for 15 years. Go away. <laughs> you know, it's just like, I'm not surprised by any of this, you know. But in the in the before times, you know, I would be on the road talking about minstrel shows, coon songs, slavery, Every night in my, you know, interviews, blah, 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 doing this, doing that. And then I'd come back to Ireland and just kind of take a deep breath. And it's not, you know, that the specter of that. I mean, they have other issues here, but the specter of that is not here. And I, I do, I definitely understand that of just being away from it when it is your work. But that, again, is different altogether than being completely unable to go back to the well. And then when all this stuff is going on and people are protesting and I'm just like, I have nothing to do and I can't do anything there. You know, like all my gigs have been canceled but I can't even help. We'll be right back with more from Rhiannon Giddens and Bruce Headlam after a quick break. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Snagajob is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, temp to hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer... Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com where America goes to hire. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. We're back with more from Rhiannon Giddens. You know, the, the sense of uh, missing someone in folk music from Africa, from Scotland, I assume from Ireland, is often about missing people across a whole ocean. Um, that's sort of embedded in the music. So you must have felt that quite strongly when you were playing some of these tunes. 
Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen my family in over a year. Francesco, like, especially in the beginning, like, Italy was hit really hard. Like, people were dying left and right. And, like, his, he had relatives who got sick. And, you know, just the stress of, like, if something happens, I can't even get there. It comes out in funny ways in the album because your version of I Shall Not Be Moved, which is an old spiritual, which has been adopted by the labor movement, the civil rights movement, and maybe the words there are movements because suddenly it's a song about not being moved, not being able to move almost. Were you thinking that when you were recording it? I recorded that because for me, that was my connection to Joe Thompson, who was the black fiddler from Mebane, North Carolina, the elder that I like learned his family's tradition. Can you explain a little bit of, of when you met him and, and who he was? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Joe Thompson was even more important than we knew <laughs> when we started going down to see him. He was a massively important person. He was the last of a family of black string band traditions. It had been passed down as a family tradition. He, he was part of the Thompson family band. They played for the white and the black square dances in his area because everybody used to do this is what people don't understand because that's a whole other reason. There's a whole other story why people don't know that. And he was the last of his family to be playing this music. And nobody else had picked it up. And the people he used to play with were dead, his, you know, his cousin and his brother. And so he was playing with white musicians, you know, wonderful people in the area. And then me and the other two original Carolina Chocolate Drops, Tom Flemons and Justin Robinson, started going down to Mebane to play with them. Because Mebane was like 45 minutes away from where we all lived. And um, he passed on his family's tradition to us, you know, so... He lived to be 92, and we we're incredibly lucky to have had him because we. I found out later through the work of John Jeremiah Sullivan that he is the musical descendant of um, Frank Johnson, who was a very famous black string band musician from the 1800s and bought himself out of slavery with his fiddle. And there's been an oral tradition that's been passed down from Frank Johnson to, to Joe, not to us. So it's just to have that connection to the once vast, incredibly influential, super important Black String Band tradition that's now almost completely gone is, you know, I sometimes like hyperventilate a little bit <laughs> to myself when I think about like how close we were to missing, you know, having a, a living connection to that. So I feel the, the responsibility and the importance of that quite a lot. And so anytime there's an opportunity to include one of his songs or to be able to talk about him. And that one in particular, I had quoted when I when I wrote a song earlier this, what was last year, um, I wrote it around Juneteenth and I performed it with um, Yo-Yo Ma and I did a, a, a performance of it, a little video of it. It's called Build a House. And it's just, you know, kind of lamenting about the idea that, you know, African-Americans were like brought to the United States, built so much of the United States, and then continuously are, just seems to me that people just want us gone, <laughs> you know? And it's just like, yeah, I don't know. It's just, I was just really um, despairing of everything. And I wrote this song and at the very end, it says, you know, I will not be moved. You know, you brought me here to build your house. I built the house. I wrote my own house. You burned it down. I wrote my song. You took the song, but you know what? My well, is, my well will never run dry and I will not be moved. You know, it's a direct quote from not just I shall not be moved, but from Joe. Was there something idiosyncratic or very particular about the way he and his family played this music? Because it's, you know, not all fiddlers are the same. Things can be very local. Are there things you learned from him that you just wouldn't have learned technically from other fiddlers? Yeah, when you know, all three of us were just learning old time music when we started playing with Joe. So everything that I learn, everything that I, I play now is inflected by playing with Joe and with kind of absorbing that. And it's very rhythmic. It's very I learned a Joe could do more with like six notes, you know, <laughs> a lot yeah. of people could do with twenty five. I mean, he just kind of an effortless being in the groove with the groove. You know, there's something about being a dance musician that you just cannot fake, you know, and we have, you know, we, I played for dances and so it does, it does affect everything that I do and, and the, and also the way he sang. So when I'm singing, 
he had a beautiful voice and it just kind of came out of him in this way. And so that affects how I sing these kind of songs too. And then in this particular song, the way he, I did it the way he does it, which, you know, he, he didn't put a space in between the end of one verse and the beginning of the next. So it's not like it's, I shall not, I shall not be moved. I shall not, I shall not be moved like a tree planted by the water. I shall not be moved climbing Jacob, right? So there's no space. It's not, I shall not be moved. Climbing Jacob. That's what, you know, that's what we usually do, right? You have the ending and then the beginning of the next thing. But there's something about that, you know, I shall not be moved. Climbing Jacob's ladder. I shall not be moved. You know, there's something about that, you know? It's very simple, but the 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 thing that you that you got from Joe was that it never ended. You know, it was just like this rolling river of sound and he would just kind of dip his foot in it and then take his foot out. Does that come out of playing for dances, that that idea that you just keep going? I think it comes out of playing for dances. I think it comes out of just being saturated in that music. Him and other old timers, you know, who they're they're gone. That life is over. He was born into a community and he died in that community and he had a function in that community, there was no thought to it. It was just like my, you know, daddy played fiddle and then I played fiddle and, you know, I played with my brother. And as soon as we were old enough, we took over the dances. You know, he became a performer, but he was a function musician. He was a community musician. And it was music that he grew up doing. And that's a, that's a special thing. And, and I would never pretend like that's what I do. Do you think that kind of world can exist, can coexist in the world as it is now? Not everybody's waiting for the dance on Friday night. It's not a necessary <laughs> tradition the way it probably was for many people. Oh, sure. I mean, that was the entertainment. I mean, the reason why it died is because TV came. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, unfortunately, TV is a, is a great culture killer. It's just this kind of stuff. I mean, it's not to say that stuff didn't survive that. It did. Obviously, Joe could still play and sing, but it wasn't it changed function that music changed it was then it became performance music for a ticket price and mostly white people in the audience and all this kind of stuff and that's just it just changes it and it doesn't mean that it's not as good or doesn't need to be done it's just different tell me why particularly the black history of string bands and country music hasn't survived or or isn't widely known because that's uh, you know, and many people, you know, they look at you as someone who who has really highlighted a tradition that very few people know about. You know, the exceptions that, that you know, Johnny Cash uh, was taught guitar by black guitarists. So I think it was Hank Williams. There's a lot of mentors who are African-American, but they weren't well known. Their students were well known. Why isn't the African-American string band tradition as well known as the Carter family? Uh, or other mountain music. What happened? Oh, and the Carter family, another example, you know, Leslie Riddle going along with them, and a lot of that music came, would have come from how he wrote it down, how he discovered it, mm-hmm. and he's given no credit at all. No, definitely, certainly no royalties. Isn't that funny? And I, th- so. I think he, he had a lot to do with teaching Mabel how to play the guitar, and she's, mm-hmm. that is the guitar method for so much country music. Yep. It's it's everywhere. We're everywhere, except for, you know, in the consciousness of, <laughs> of, of the majority of the people. I mean, I realize ask, I'm asking a long question that has a very simple answer. It doesn't. Well, it has an answer, which is racism, but. No, no, it's not that. It's, it's look, I'll give you my my perception okay. of it. Like I, I as I've been researching it and giving lectures on this, I'm not a I have a music degree. That's my disclaimer in Western art music. (laughs) So all of this has been self-researched just as I'm trying to find the answer. So as I've been doing the research, I find three reasons and they're interconnected. Racism is one of them. Absolutely. 
And actually, <laughs> racism is under all of it. So in a short answer, you are correct. But that's not enough for people because it's it's too big. It's, it's, it's all timing and crossroads. So the, the Great Migration is happening. Millions of people are leaving the South. Of course, why are they leaving the South? Racism. <laughs> so that's at the, the, the heart of that. But there is this mass movement of people. People are moving to the cities in the North and in, in the West, away from the South. And they're bringing their ways with them to a point. But the banjo, in particular, is a very specific cultural instrument as it was in, say, 1800s. And... You know, you get to the north and it's like, oh, this other stuff's starting to happen up here. Like, I don't want to play old grandpa's corn pone music. You know what I mean? I want to play the new stuff, right? That's just a natural thing when people move. And then you have the recording industry coming into play. So the recording industry is coming in in the 20s. And you have people like Ralph Peer inventing Hillbilly and race records. Like, basically segregating American music at its source. Right. Because they, I mean, there was the whole idea of recording regular people in order to sell their music to themselves was a new thing, you know, because what was being recorded was like classical music or dance music or this kind of stuff. So even the idea of ethnic music saved a lot of music, which is great, but it saved a lot of music through a particular lens. And this is also what happened with Cecil Sharp when he came over, ballad collecting, say, in the Appalachian Mountains. And that, goes into the third reason, which is blatant white supremacy and the creation of a mythical white ethnicity and character as a direct pushback against what Henry Ford, for example, saw as the jungle music of jazz and blues and this this collusion with Jews. You know, he thought Jews were trying to take over the world. I mean, it's just all sorts of nasty crap. Then you have going on within this sort of stew of white nationalism and supremacy, the beginnings of the folk festivals and in in sort of the folk movement, as it was called at that point. And so like built on Cecil Sharp's discoveries of Barbary Allen or whatever, these, these direct links as they saw back to the old country. Meanwhile, he ignored any black people he saw, hated them, called them the N-word, and never recorded any of them, even though up to... 20% of the people in the Appalachian Mountains were black up until the Great Migration. So he's like in his diaries, like he talks about like, we lugged the machine. We heard about a likely family up the hill and we lugged the machine all the way up there and darned if it wasn't in a house full of N-words, you know, <laughs> and we had to go all the way back down there, didn't record them. So this is happening. And then they're coming up with these folk fiddle uh, competitions. Black people aren't allowed, right? Just straight up aren't allowed, even though in a lot of places they were the best fiddlers because the black fiddler, even more than the black banjo player, was like ubiquitous. They were everywhere. They were the jukeboxes of the country. The black string band is just, you know, at every function, there's black string bands. They're, I mean, they are the jukeboxes, you know, in the radios before, you know, that's when square dance goes into, starts getting put into schools as like the American pastime. But what they mean is the white American pastime, even though, you know, square dance calling was most likely invented by African-Americans and that they would have been playing a lot of these dances. It's just on and on and on and on and on. All the first players of bluegrass, not just influenced, but like were taught by or learned from or were coming straight out of that. You know, what is recorded is remembered, you know. So all of this is happening at a time where things are being put down on wax and that's what lasts, you know, and the imagery and what they were doing and this creation of the hillbilly character, which is it looks one way and wasn't even real anyway. I mean, like it's, you, you wouldn't have any kind of fiddle and banjo players worth their salt who would go into a studio or go into a gig dressed like they just wandered off the farm. You know, they made them do that for marketing purposes because they were creating, they were also myth-making in the mountains as well. So everybody's being made up. But what happens is that the black, not influence, but co-creation of the root of all American music is forgotten and we're sort of shunted into the, you know, okay, it's okay for us to, to be in blues and jazz and stuff in spirituals because that's coming out of our pain. <laughs> well, th that was the other reason, and, and I'm thinking of the book uh, Escaping the Delta, which is about Robert Johnson, but it's about a lot of things. And, you know, the writer points out that all of those musicians played in many, many styles, Oh, God, they played it all. They, they could do it all. But when it was marketed, when it was marketed as authentic black music, it was the blues. And that's what they thought people wanted to hear. It, blues was an incredibly important art form. 
to Black people because it did express part of a lot of people's lives. But that wasn't the only way that they expressed mm-hmm. themselves. You know, it was just the popular thing in that moment. And so in come these people and go, well, you listen to that and you listen to that. And it was like, well, we listen to everything, actually. But it's all about capitalism. It's all about, like, we just need to sell this stuff the easiest way. And marketing, marketing goes in there. And then it's like, who are you seeing doing this? And then that's the great divide begins there. You know, I think the portion of history and musical American musical history for me that is most fascinating where I think all of the seeds of all of this stuff were planted and start to bloom is between emancipation and the 1920s. And that's the stuff that's not, that's not recorded. You know, all we have is stuff that's been written about it and people talking about it and all this kind of stuff. And, but there's a lot of, there's still a lot of things we can glean from that time, but it just takes time and smarter people than me writing books that I can then read and (laughs) come up with my, my theories, you know, to, to help people understand this, you know. But it's also a time when a lot of music was passed along through minstrel shows, which are a kind of, for good reason, radioactive form of entertainment that it's hard to come to terms with now. Well, what I'm finding is that we have to, we have to separate the minstrel show and the music that went into the minstrel show in a lot of ways. It's not to say that the music that went into the minstrel show is not problematic, because it is, but... There's musicians and then there's the spectacle and they are related. But I think what happens is that the music gets conflated into the show and then it's like we can't look at any of it. And it's like I can't do that because in that music is like our my ancestors are in that music. So like when I pick up that a book from 1855, the Briggs Banjo Instructor, and this is the very first banjo instructor in the United States. Now, Banjo's invented in the Caribbean by Africans and African descended peoples and then comes up to the U.S. and only makes the transition to white culture in the 1820s, right? So 30 years after that is the first book written. So these, all of these first generation of white banjo players, where are they getting their banjo licks, you know, <laughs> from black players? So in this book, I've, I've learned a lot of these tunes on a, a you know, a replica of a banjo from 1858. So it feels very different to a modern banjo. And I feel so much like, okay, here is these black banjo players are in these tunes. There's like all this three against two, you know, all of the, all of the things that go into American music are all represented in miniature in these tunes. And three against two is, that's very, that's very West African sound, isn't it? Yeah. And, and like, as I mess with these tunes, I, you know, cause the fifth string, that's it right there. Like what that does to a tune, what that does to music. Like that's why I used to get so upset. You know, that myth of the, of, um, of a white guy inventing the fifth string. It's just like, <laughs> I didn't know that was a myth. <laughs> you know, uh, um, and the fifth string, is it always, uh, I, I'm sorry. I don't know the banjo. Is it, is it like a drone? It's a drone. It's a short drone string. And, what what that means for playing and it's very unique the claw hammer style which is called stroke style during this time it's like go around the world and see if you can find that i mean they do it in west africa <laughs> you know with the accounting the patroon doing some other things but it's a very unique style you play the back the back of the, the front, first finger the nail and the thumb and it, that's it it's just those two things so there's all the syncopation that's built into the instrument it's like deep 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 cultural meaning in that. And so if you throw that away, you know, you throw away all of those nameless, you know, black banjo players. Do you have a banjo there? Could you just show, demonstrate a little bit of the drone sound? And I don't know if there's a song on the album. You just want to show us how you how you did it? So this is my um, gourd banjo. So it's not, it's not as uh, steady as my minstrel banjo, but it's the same tuning and...
That's a piece from 1855, Briggs Banjo Instructor, called Hard Times. And there it is. Like, what else do you want? That's just like one piece from that. But can't you hear it all in there? It was beautiful. Yeah. And you you make it look very easy, and it, it clearly is not. Well, I mean, the tune is actually quite simple, but there's a lot rhythmically that can be brought out of it. And that's where I feel like I have a I have an interesting perspective into these tunes because I've had the time with Joe Thompson. So, you know. Like on the surface, this isn't, it's a jig, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, but there's so much dun, 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 dun in that. And it's, and it's just like, even when you just take this, the little short string, this fifth string here. like the the off accents that can be pulled out with this instrument that you can't really do with the regular banjo because this these strings have a lot of give and when I think about like I studied pre-banjo instruments like the accounting and how that give gives you a bounce that then shows just the natural syncopation in the instrument just sort of imbues everything do you know what I mean I'm not crazy like you hear that no you're not crazy It's just like there's so all, all of these tunes are have worlds in them. I hear so many different aspects of like American culture in these tunes. So that's really been a code. It was kind of like a I feel like it was a code breaker for me. It was like, oh, here it is. <laughs> you know. Well, it's like it, it's like you start to hear a different sound after you've played it a couple of bars. It just it, it has its own kind of momentum or something. It reminds me of the playing of your guitarist on this record. Uh, Niwel Tsumbu. But he, and, and there's a wonderful video of you playing, uh, I think, Waterbound, maybe, mm-hmm. where at some point you just, you take your fiddle bow and you kind of point at him. And he's playing these figures that just, they just sound like they should go on forever. That, that it has like their whole- Water cascading or something. Yeah, it's got this whole other feeling. I wanted to ask you about working with him because I loved that sound of his guitar. It was amazing. Um, and in fact, my one of my favorite moments is is in the one called Newell Goes to Town. <laughs> it had, didn't have a, I had written the tune like in a sound check at some point and it didn't have a, a title. And we were talking about how to arrange it. And I said, well, at this point, you know, Newell just needs to go to town, you know, because I knew he would just crush it. And then we we're like, that's what we should call it. Newell Goes to Town because he does <laughs> go to town. Song. But the beginning of that tune, there's this exchange between guitar and banjo. And it just sounds so... There's, it's just so much stuff going on in that because it's like here is Newell playing like a Western instrument that has been adopted into Africa, you know, and it, there's a whole different, you know, ways of playing the guitar in different parts of Africa, you know, that comes straight out of that lute tradition of like Ngoni or Kura or, you know, all of this stuff, then all of these things sort of being put onto the guitar. And there, there I am playing the banjo, which is a descendant of those same instruments that would have been the inspiration for where some of the, the guitar work is coming from, I would assume. Like, I don't know Newell's story, but I'm just, my general knowledge of people that I've heard play the guitar who come from, you know, that area. And it's just, for me, that's what I love so much is when that happens. Cause like, it's just different people are synthesizing stuff. And then you, you when you meet, you kind of realize, oh, there's this whole, this huge circle. <laughs> That just happened here. We just completed the circle. It was amazing. You know, this is like me kind of going as far back as I can as a musician to my black ancestors who played the banjo, the closest I can get to touching them other than through Joe, you know, that's the other way. So I'm going through the the white man's book, you know, and then through the oral the black oral tradition through Joe. And so between those two approaches, I've kind of found some something that's my own, but that feels that it's connected in some way. We'll be right back with Rhiannon Giddens and Bruce Headlam 
after this break. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards that's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. We're back with Rhiannon Giddens performing the Appalachian banjo song, Georgia Buck. Georgia Buck is dead Last 
what he said Don't you put no shortening in my bread Georgia Buck is dead That's what he said Don't you put no shortening in my bread That was fantastic. A little Joe Thompson there. You have drawn a lot of attention to this tradition that people didn't generally know about. I mean, academics probably knew about it, but a lot of people didn't. And, you know, and it informs so much of your playing, you know, so you've got tradition and then you've got the individual talent. That's you. And you want to do different things with it. Sometimes when people, you know, particularly something you know, as, as, as political as rediscovering this sort of vein of African-American culture, they want it curated and they kind of, they don't want it messed with. Um, that, that goes for that. That goes for all kinds of traditions. Um, you know, as you know, in, in sort of standard country music. They want a gatekeep. You know, since, yeah, yes. Since, since it started, it's been, well, that's not real country music. Do you feel sometimes that, that, being such a strong part of that tradition almost feels a, not like a burden, but it feels that it could be confining for what you want to do with it. You know, Justin, one of the original Chocolate Drops, along, you know, one of the co-founders along with myself and Dom Plemons, you know, he used to say tradition is a guide, not a jailer. And I think that's an important statement. Tradition has never been static. And this is what people conveniently forget is that until recorded, until we had had the you know, the uh, ability to put music on a record, it was only through human memory and paper. And we all know that both of those things, despite what people say about music notation, in some, in some, you know, in some, with some music, are notoriously unreliable. Human memory is what it is, and so. Even in the days of long recall, which still happen, I mean, there's jellies and, you know, um, court musicians or whatever who can still remember vast lineages and stuff. But there is going to be slippage. There's going to be change. There's going to be disruption. There's going to be individual talent. So there's all of that going on. So it's just like, I think that it's always a moving target. And a lot of times the people who are gatekeeping, not to say that there aren't people from within the tradition who do that, there are. But it always feels to me that people, there's always more people from coming from without. You know, this especially happened in the old time community. A lot of people came to the old time community from the north, from other places, looking for something. And they found it, whatever that is. And in a lot of cases, that meant that some music was saved and they took care of people. And that's wonderful. But in a lot of instances, it also came along with, well, we know what it is. And, you know, it's this way. You play the tune this way because that's how Tommy played it. 
you know, and it's like, or that's what it's on the recording. And it's just like, man, he may have been 80 years old when that recording was made. He could have been drunk that day. He could have forgotten the tune that day. He could have been ornery that day. Like, that's only the moment of that performance of the tune, you know? It's just like, none of this is in stone, even though people think it is because it's been recorded down. It was just like, just that moment of that day was recorded down. And I just think... On the one hand, you have people who want to gatekeep and who want to keep people out, even though they themselves were welcomed in by those very old timers that they're protecting from other people, right? We had people tell us, don't teach Joe new tunes, because he wanted to learn Sourwood Mountain. And we were teaching him, don't teach Joe new tunes. I'm like, the man is a musician. He's not a relic. He's not a museum piece. It's not going to ruin him. He already plays different than he did 10 years ago. He had a stroke, for God's sake. Like, he is who he is right now. And that's what we got. And it's amazing. We have it. Your version of O oh Death, which is fabulous, uh, you, it, it starts with uh, O oh Death, Death in the Morning. And I had never heard that line. And in fact, the only place, uh, because that's not how Stanley does it, Ralph Stanley or a lot of other people. Is that a standard way of doing it? What was the origin of you choosing to, to put in the morning line? I got it from Bessie Jones. You know, I, cause I had heard the Ralph Stanley version like everybody else in Oh Brother years and years ago. And of course knew that version, but I stumbled across her version somewhere and I was like, oh God, it's the black O death. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love this so much. And I was like, this is what I want. It just like, I started singing it and I was like, oh yes. You know, it just really kind of, I was possessed when we recorded that. Like absolutely possessed. All the voice, all the voiceovers, they're just passes. He does not, he's not constructing any of that. It's literally like I'm singing with myself three times through and that's it. And he just included everything. It's just, it's insane. But yeah, Bessie Jones' version of that. And I just, I connected to it in a way that I never really connected to the Ralph Stanley version. And I was like, oh, this is, this is it. Okay. That was just amazing. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks to Ann and Giddens for keeping the black string tradition alive and for sharing some of her incredible banjo playing technique. To hear her new album, They're Calling Me Home, head to brokenrecordpodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast where you can find all of our episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, Eric Sandler, and Jennifer Sanchez. With engineering help from Nick Chafee, our executive producer is Mia LaBelle. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Peace. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at t slash unconventional awards. See you there. 
With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take more control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility.